Uh, can you turn with me, please, to Haggai chapter 2? Haggai chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 to 9. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been speaking to us by your spirit through your word as it's been read. Uh, we ask now that you continue to speak to us as we just consider this passage together. Uh, please help me to preach uh, in your spirit's power. Uh, and may your spirit uh, work in each one of our hearts, uh, opening us up to your word, uh, enabling us to be encouraged by it and to love and to trust and obey you. Uh, so uh, we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. When you first start a new project, uh, there's often a sense of excitement about, about it, isn't there? Uh, whether it's at home, or it's at work, or it's at church, there's, wow, new, we've got to, we've got to do something, right? Uh, but then, after a little while, the novelty kind of wears off, and reality begins to set in. It's actually work, and sometimes it can be hard work, and sometimes there are frustrations along the way, and then there are disappointments along the way. And it calls you to say, well, is it actually worth it? Or should I just let my attention go somewhere else? Uh, and if you don't actually keep your, your eye on the big picture of what you're trying to achieve, then you can easily get distracted or discouraged and give up. Well, the Jews at the time of the prophecy we're looking at this evening uh, were possibly in danger uh, in that kind of direction. You remember uh, last week, if you were with us, uh, you probably remember the background, the Haggai, for the sake of those who were away, uh, and for the sake of those with short memories, uh, let me just recap for you. A thousand years before this, uh, God had brought his people, Israel, out of Egypt, and he brought them into the promised land. Now, when they came out of Egypt, God made a covenant with them. Uh, it's not the covenant that we have uh, through Jesus, which is called the new covenant. This is what we call the old covenant. Right? Uh, it's a covenant made with, through Moses, the place called Mount Sinai. Uh, God had blessed them first, he rescued them first, he showed them grace first, but then under these terms of the old covenant, they needed to obey to remain in God's blessing. God freely gave them the promised land, uh, and if they obeyed God, he would bless them in the land with material prosperity. But if they disobeyed God, he would withhold his blessing and they would face God's curse. In fact, eventually, they would be expelled from the land. Now, the story of Israel in the land was a mixed story, but predominantly a story of sin and rebellion. God kept his promises to them. He kept, brought them in the land and all those things, but this is ongoing and persistent sin. And eventually, the curses came, just as God said. The prophets had warned them about the judgment to come. But they refused to listen, and eventually they were taken off into exile. But even as the prophets were warning them about the judgment to come, they were also predicting a future beyond the judgment. Uh, through these prophets, God promised that he would, he would bring his people back, and one day he would make a new covenant with them, a covenant in which God would, would change their hearts by the Spirit to enable them to, to love him and obey him from the inside. A covenant in which each believer would have a personal relationship with God. A covenant in which their sins would be forgiven and he would remember them no more. And there would be a new temple and the glory of God would fill this new temple. 
And living water would flow out from this temple and give life to all the nations. And God would put a king over them. In fact, God would rule over them personally as king. And somehow or other, this king would also be a descendant of King David. And he would reign not only over Israel, but over the whole world. And his glorious kingdom would last forever. Now, in the time of Haggai the prophet, God had just begun that process of bringing his people back into the promised land. The Babylonians, who had actually taken them off into exile, had been defeated by the Persians. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, gave the Jews permission to come back and build God's house in Jerusalem. A number of exiles returned, the process began, and they got as far as laying the foundation of the temple. And then they stopped because the people in the land, they wrote to the Persian authorities, maligning them, accusing the workers of rebellion. The new Persian king thought, no, better not, this is a bit dangerous, better stop the work, uh, and so had to stop. And even when another king came on the throne, the Jews made no attempt to start the work again until Haggai and another prophet, Zechariah, prophesied, commanded them to do so. And last week, we looked at the first of Haggai's four prophecies. Uh, and that prophecy was delivered on the 29th of August, 520 BC. And that was the call to build God's house, to start work again. Remember, the Jews were not experiencing the material blessings promised under the Old Covenant because they hadn't been obedient. They'd spent all their efforts on their own houses while God's temple lay in ruins. And so God, through Haggai, urged them to do the work of building the temple. And they heard God's warnings. They heard about the blessings and curses. They heard God's promise to be with them as they did his work. God stirred up his spirit that they would want to do this. And so 24 days later, on the 24th of the month, of the 24th day of the sixth month, they started work. Last week, we also saw how this applied to us as God's new covenant people. Uh, we saw last week that Jesus is the true temple. He's the place where we meet God. That's going to be important for us later on today. And we also saw last week that there is another way the New Testament picks up this temple imagery in that we are God's temple. Individually, because God's Spirit dwells in us. But on a much grander scale, God's people, all God's people together are, are, are living stones in this temple that's being built uh, for the living God. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets provided the foundation and all of us are part of that temple. You see that in Ephesians. And as the gospel goes out and people come to know Christ, they keep on coming to faith in Christ. They are added one by one as stones of this temple that is being built for God to dwell in by His Spirit. And this big universal temple is expressed in the, in the local church. The people, not the buildings. And so we as a church are a temple of God. We saw that in 1 Corinthians last week. You and I are part of this building project. We are God's fellow workers. As we speak the gospel, as we encourage each other, as we help each other press on, as we tell other people about Jesus, we are building the temple. And last week, some of us received the rebuke that God gave through Haggai. And we realized that we were wrong to neglect the building of the temple to be building our own houses. Some of us received the word of promise, promise given, delivered by the risen Jesus. I am with you always to the end of the age. Some of us had our spirit stirred by God's spirit through his word, and we were enthused to go and build. 
Before we go, can I just ask, how are things one week later? Is temple building still on the agenda? Are we just getting comfortable again without making any concrete decisions or at least next actions? Very easy. Come in, ding, 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 and then go on the other side. And next time it comes, you'll have less impact. Don't forget the whole thing. Well, the people in Haggai's day, they actually started building. They got that far at least. And the building kind of came up pretty quickly. You know why? Because remember, they didn't have to do the foundations. Foundations are already there. Right? So now, already starting, starting from, from the ground up. Lah, right? And so, quite fast. And so by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, that's just under a month later, when Haggai's second prophecy came, they could already see a bit of what the temple was going to look like. And quite frankly, it would have been disappointing. It's obvious that it looked nothing like that glorious temple of Ezekiel's vision. In fact, the older people could see it wasn't even as good as the old one that was destroyed, Solomon's temple. They were disillusioned. Here they are putting themselves at risk from the authorities. Here they are putting themselves out, working hard on this building project. In fact, they came all the way back from Babylon for this. They might have been asking, is it worth it? Might have been feeling discouraged in their work. Feel like giving up. And friends, there are all kinds of things that might disappoint us as we seek to build God's temple. You know, if you've been on the building project of God's house for a while, you will know that things are not always positive. Serving God is the delight, don't get me wrong. There's nothing I'd rather be doing than what I'm doing now. The road of faithful service is a wonderful journey with many joys along the way. But sometimes the road does go uphill. And sometimes you can look at the church as it is today and you think, well, this is pretty pathetic and weak. You don't see the glory. You see the threats from outside. You see some petty fighting within. You see people who let you down. You see people who make commitments and don't follow through. You see things that are poorly organized compared with the professionalism of your multinational company. And you say, don't see much glory here. This is nothing in my eyes. You may be putting yourself at risk for the work. You may have made all kinds of sacrifices. And you think, for this, is it worth it? You may feel discouraged in your work and feel like giving up. In my experience, one of, the most, one of the things that, well, that most encourages other Christians is other Christians. But one of the things that most discourages other Christians is other Christians, isn't it? It can be like that. Right? Sometimes other people act in ways that are objectively disappointing. Sometimes other people act in ways that are disappointing to us because we see them through our lenses. Problem is, it's often impossible for us to tell the difference. 
Sometimes we ourselves act in ways that are objectively disappointing. Sometimes our actions are a disappointment to others, not because we've actually done something wrong, but because of how they see it. The problem is it's often impossible for them to tell the difference either. Sometimes it can be a terrible discouragement because we can't see how God can be changing someone's life. How can you re- can you really be making this person a stone in his temple? They're so like that one. We can't see how we want to be involved in the same building project as this other person we don't like. And that's actually pretty discouraging to both parties, isn't it? There might be other things that discourage us. If we labor and labor and labor on a project and we get little fruit, we, we might be discouraged. Might work so hard to prepare a good Bible study for your GG and then people don't turn up. That can be discouraging. You can serve so faithfully in your ministry and you find so hard to recruit other people to serve with you. So it's just left with a small group of people and you feel like, oh yeah, we've got to carry this whole thing ourselves. That can be discouraging. You can work really hard to serve the Lord at the end of the year, you look around, actually you haven't really grown now, at least in numbers. You can feel discouraged. You shouldn't be because faithfulness is more important than results, but it's easy to be discouraged, right? When you look at the numbers. Friends, God knows that discouragements will come as we're seeking to build his temple. God knew that the people of Haggai's day were in danger of being discouraged. And he cared. He cared enough to send his word. Verse 2 continues. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? See, God knows lah. He knows his temple doesn't look so great. Knows it looks small and pitiable compared to that grand temple that Solomon built. So what's he going to say to encourage these discouraged people? Well, he's going to give them three commands and a promise. The first command is in verse 4. He says, Yet now, be strong. Be strong. If I notice, he says it three times to really emphasize it. He says, Yet now be strong, as Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Be strong. Why is he saying be strong? Well, this is not the first time God says this to his people. Um, Multiple times in Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1, the end of Deuteronomy, beginning of Joshua, when Moses is handing over to, to Joshua, Moses tells him and then God tells him to be strong. Sometimes it's paired with courage, so it's be strong and courageous. Joshua will need to be strong to be able to lead his people into the promised land. David told his son Solomon to be strong when he commanded him to build God's temple. And now through Haggai, God says to Zerubbabel, the governor, to Joshua, the high priest, to all the people, be strong. 
like Joshua, like Solomon, you've got a big task to do, so be strong and do it. Now what about us as God's new covenant people? How can we be strong? Does it tell us, the New Testament tell us to do that? Well, a couple of places actually. Uh, I can think of Ephesians 6 verse 10, where we are told to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Uh, and the reason we need to do that is because, well, we have an enemy. There's the schemes of the devil. We do not struggle against flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers and the rulers of the heavenly places. You see, the devil also doesn't want us to build God's house, right? And he will use any opportunity to discourage us. And by the way, internal conflicts are a classic move. That's why two chapters earlier, uh, in chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. But here in chapter 6, verse 10, the command is to be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The command is in the continuous passive. That is, it's continuous because it's not a once and for all thing. You've got to continue to be strong. It's not some, okay, be strong. Okay, now I'm strong. Okay, well, okay what's next? No, no, you keep on being strong. Okay? Um, so it's continuous and it's passive. So how do you, how do, you do a passive? <laughs> Well, it's a passive because God makes us strong. Right? We are to be strong in the Lord. So how do you obey the command? Well, our part, verse 11, is to put on the whole armor of God. To put on the whole armor of God. Right? That's how you're going to be stronger. Um, now, we don't have time to go through it all in detail. But actually, it's all basic stuff. That is, it all comes out of the gospel. Right? The armor is what? Truth. Righteousness, salvation, faith, the word of God, prayer. All basic stuff lah, comes out from the gospel, isn't it? We're strengthened by God as we continue to appropriate these things for ourselves. We, we keep learning and believing God's truth. We keep trusting the righteousness that comes from Christ and seeking to live in righteous ways. We keep being ready to speak the, the gospel of peace. We continue in faith, trusting in God even when we're under fire. Uh, we keep relying on God promise of salvation. We keep speaking his words to others. We keep praying for ourselves and for others and for the gospel to go out. And of course, all those things are actually a response to, to God's actions in Christ and in the gospel. And we're dependent upon him. But we're commanded to, to do all those things. All those basic things that will make us strong as we keep doing that to stand against the enemy. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. The other place in the New Testament, or another place in the New Testament we heard the command be strong is in 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1, Paul says, uh, if you read one translation, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, here in our ESV, it's be strengthened by the grace which is in Christ Jesus. Actually, that's a better translation because again, that's it's a passive. Be strengthened by the grace. Uh, in this passage in 2 Timothy 2, if you keep on reading, Paul is going to be telling Timothy to reproduce reproduces. Right? That is, entrust the things he learned from him to faithful men who will then be able to teach others as well. Right? And so there's that, well, 
What's that? That's what we would call at the moment building the temple, isn't it? Right? And then Paul will warn Timothy that to do that, he'll need to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. That he'll need to follow the rules like a competing athlete. That he'll need to, 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 to labor hard like a hardworking farmer. But before he tells Timothy about this ministry and all the things you have to do, he starts the chapter by saying, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by God's grace. And the word grace, we know, means unmerited favor. It's God treating us far, far better than we deserve. As sinners, we deserve God's punishment, but instead Jesus died for us to take the punishment for us so we can be forgiven. That's why a little bit earlier in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says God saved us and he called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace. And now he says to Timothy be strengthened by that grace. Be strengthened by that grace that is in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters you and I need to keep the grace that God has shown us in Jesus Christ front and center of our thinking. We need to keep the gospel of Christ crucified for us at the very heart of our motivations. Grace is what's going to drive us to keep on going in ministry. We need to be strengthened by grace. So keep looking back to the cross where your Savior died in your place. Keep looking forward to the future where you enjoy His presence and glory. Never stop being amazed of God's mercy that He chose you before the foundation of the world to belong to Him. Grace is what will keep you strong. Be strengthened by grace. And so when, when God's Old Testament people were discouraged in the building project, God said, be strong. And now to us, he says, be strong. Be strengthened by grace. Keep going back to the gospel. Keep going back to those basic things that will keep you going strong. Keep looking back to grace. Be strong. In the midst of discouragement, go back there. Now coming back to the passage, the second command God gives his people uh, comes towards the end of verse 4. Right? He, said, he already said, be strong, all you people of the land, close the Lord. Next thing he says is, work. Work. You know, sometimes when we are discouraged, our tendency is to withdraw. But God wanted his people to work. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, there is a time and place to rest. Uh, there is a time and place to take a step back. Actually, rest is very important, right? If you are discouraged because you are too tired and need a break, then the answer is very simple. I go and take a rest. Have a rest. Get more sleep. Go on holiday, whatever, right? Don Carson once wrote that sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. But lack of rest may not be the reason for the discouragement we face. And it's certainly not the reason for discouragement here. So you can't just put that to, every, to everything. Let's see what the reason is. Uh, so when God's people are discouraged here, God says to them, work. Keep doing it. Don't stop. Don't withdraw. Right? Sometimes it's very hard to start again once you stop. Right? He says, you work. You keep up the good work. And the second command is linked to a promise, the very same promise that we heard last week. Verse 4 again, he says, Work for I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. The Lord of hosts, in fact, 
says that he is with them. The Yahweh of armies, the mighty, powerful God. And how would they know that? Verse 5 continues. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt. God made his promise to be with them in his covenant. He assures them now of that promise in his word through Hagar. They had God's word. And on that basis, they should know that he is with them. They should work. And friends, the Israelites, they only had the old covenant. We've got the new covenant. It's even better. Uh, we have Jesus, who we saw last week, says to us, as we go and make disciples, he says, I am with you always. The mighty, powerful God is with us. He promised to be with us, and he always keeps his promise. Whatever the discouragement, whether it's other people's behavior, whether it's external difficulties, whether it's seeming lack of progress, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be a deal breaker. Whatever happens, you have Jesus with you. Your ministry may look like a success or a failure, but what it looks like is not so important. What's important is if you're faithful to Jesus. People can say anything they like about you, doesn't change the fact that you have Jesus. And that's far more important. If we are making disciples, as we baptize the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded, Jesus is with us. He's promised. So listen to me, my discouraged brother or discouraged sister. Just imagine that you went home tonight and you're sitting in your room saying your prayers before you go to bed and then suddenly and your room becomes really bright and an angel appears before you and the angel says I come with a message from Jesus I know you're discouraged but I want you to keep going back to my gospel I want you to keep being strengthened by my grace. I want you to keep building my house. And fear not, I am with you. That's the message from Jesus for you. Thank you. The light goes away, angel disappears. Do you think that will make a difference to your ministry? Do you think you'll be encouraged? Well, don't be silly. You don't need an angel to appear to you. You have the word of Jesus. That's better than a message from an angel, isn't it? We have the promise of the risen Jesus to be with us. And on that basis, we are to press on in the work of making disciples. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. So God promises to be with his people. And in verse 5, it shows that it is by his spirit. My spirit remains in your midst. All right? If his spirit is with them, then he is with them. And if he is with them, then there is no need to fear. Which That's the third command. Fear not. Fear not. These people don't need to fear the authorities who might not look so positively on the building project. 
They don't need to fear the naysayers who complain. They don't need to fear the grumblers who say, nah, I'm not as good as the old one, just give up. Right? Fear not. My spirit is with you. And friends, if Jesus is with us by his spirit, then also we don't need to fear. We don't need to be paralyzed as we build the temple. We don't need to fear the people from outside who might want to stop the building project. We don't need to fear the naysayers who complain or the grumblers who say, nah, it's no good, look how pathetic, may as well give up. No, 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 no. Fear not. Be strong and build. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep teaching God's word to others. Keep encouraging your brothers and sisters. Keep praying. Keep giving. Keep helping the weak. Keep looking out for each other. Keep looking for ways to serve. Like the Jews, you've, you've started building the temple. Don't stop now. Be strong. Work. Fear not. The Spirit is with us, and so Christ is with us. And if Christ is with us, God is with us. The triune God is in our midst. Fear not. The other reason to fear not is because actually what you're doing is not in vain. Don't need to fear that either. You see, what these old God's Old Testament people were doing, even though it's looking kind of like pretty pathetic, actually God had a big plan for that. And that's another reason why they could be encouraged. Yes, the temple looks small and insignificant, but, but God makes a promise for the future of this small and insignificant looking temple. He says in verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Right, back at Sinai, when God first made his covenant with his Old Testament people, right, his voice shook the earth. And so scary and so momentous was this, this, the presence of the living God that the, the people of Israel couldn't bear it. Uh, they knew God is holy, knew that they are sinful, and... It was so terrible. God says, once more I'm going to shake. Once more I'm going to show myself to be so holy and powerful. And I'll do it in an even bigger way. I will shake not only the earth, but he says, verse 6, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and everything. There is going to be a mighty and terrifying revelation of God. A revelation so big that even Sinai will be small in comparison. And God's holiness and power will be seen in great judgment. And when God shakes the earth, what will happen? All the treasures of the earth will come into the temple. Verse 7, I will shake all the nations, so the treasures of all the nations shall come in. Maybe it's like, it's like those money boxes. You shake, 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 all the money come out. Okay? I'll shake the nations, all the treasures of the nations shall come in. I, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, right? And what's God going to do? He's going to bring it into the temple. And when he does, verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So there you got the promise. A new, bigger shaking. The riches of the nation streaming into the temple. The temple be glorified. And peace. The restoration of right relationship between God 
and people and people with each other. Well, what happens after this? How does it all work out? As expected, the temple that was built was really not as good as the previous one. But the temple would be renovated by King Herod in 19 BC and beautified with gold from the nations. And it would indeed be magnificent. In fact, it would be one of the wonders of the ancient world. So magnificent would it be that the Romans would say, whoever has not seen Herod's building has never seen a beautiful building in their life. And the temple would indeed become glorious. But that wouldn't be the real glory of that temple. Remember in Moses' time, when the tabernacle was built? The tabernacle was like the mobile precursor to this, this temple, or Solomon's temple. What happened? The cloud of God's glory filled the tabernacle. And then in Solomon's time, when the first temple was built, the cloud of God's glory filled the temple. But in this temple, the second temple, never happened. The cloud never appeared. And yet God promised through Haggai that the glory of this temple would be greater than the glory of the previous one. How can? Well, in about 6 BC, there was a man in the temple whose name was Simeon. A man who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Because even though the temple was built and the people were in the land, the kind of glorious promises that the prophets had made is still not yet fulfilled. God's people were, in a very real sense, still under curse, even though they're back. But God had told Simeon that he would not see death until he sees the Lord's Christ, the promised king who would change everything. And then Mary and Joseph brought this little baby, age eight days old, into the temple. And when the man picked up this little baby, he said, now I'm ready to die. Lord, now let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. For my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. The glory of God came into that temple that day. But it was only seen by those who got eyes to see it. The baby looks so weak and powerless, looks like can't do anything. But you want to see the glory of God? Look at that baby. Twelve years later, the kids back at the temple, astounding the teachers with his questions. The parents searching for him everywhere, don't know where he is. Finally, they come and find him there. And he says, oh, why didn't you look here first? It's my father's house. Many years later, he comes back to the temple. 
And this time he drives out the money changers and the merchants who are there. Sets himself up there, starts teaching and healing. And when the temple authorities question, what gives you authority to come and do this here? He asked them about John the Baptist in Malachi. Because in Malachi, the one who comes after, the one who prepares the way for the Lord, is the Lord himself come to his temple. This is God at his temple. God made flesh, the man Jesus Christ. God didn't just symbolically come to the temple in a cloud. He really came himself in Jesus. And the latter glory was much, much, much greater than the first. Of course, people will be more impressed with the supernatural cloud. But the real glory is seen in God's Son. Jesus rejected by the temple authorities. And, you know, he left the temple in the same way as in Ezekiel's vision. The cloud of God's glory leaves the temple. It goes to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus leaves the temple. It goes to the Mount of Olives. And there on the Mount of Olives, he teaches his disciples that this temple is going to be destroyed. And just over 35 years later, in the year AD 70, that's exactly what happens. The Romans come in, they destroy it, and that temple has never been rebuilt. But what Haggai said came true first. The temple was much more glorious. The glory of God was seen in Jesus. Well, that was Haggai's temple. But remember we saw last week that in the New Testament, the real temple is Jesus himself. That temple in the Old Testament that was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed, that's actually pointing forward to him. And all God's promises are actually fulfilled in him. He is the place where we really meet God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who really gives us that living water. Destroy this temple, he said, and I'll raise it up in three days. And he's talking about the temple of his body. But you know, when Jesus walked among us, he, he didn't look that impressive either, did he? People said, this guy, Messiah, Kanbila. Like Haggai's temple, he was... He was nothing in their eyes. They didn't see the glory. Even in his death, he looked so weak. How does this man dying on a cross save anyone? But that's what he was doing, wasn't he? Hanging on the cross to take your punishment and mine. Bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. That great act of judgment being there was that great, sh the huge shaking greater than any act of judgment the world had ever seen in the past, where God's holiness is truly seen. If you have eyes to see, la. But then on the third day, God raised his son from the dead. And that risen, glorious Jesus is the permanent, glorious temple. And the treasures of the nations, Gentiles like you and me, flowing into it. And the glory of Jesus far exceeds the glory of any temple that is built in Israel's history. And in him, we truly have peace. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. 
But then let's think back again about the application when it comes to the temple that we are part of the building project of. Because that's got application for, it's still got application for us as well, isn't it? In the next stage of that biblical theological line. Remember Haggai? The building looks so small and insignificant, they wonder if they should be pressing on or not. What did God say? Be strong, work, fear not. And one day, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, I'll reveal myself in terrible judgments, the treasures of the nations will come in and the glory of this temple will be seen. It's like that for our temple, isn't it? The temple that we're building, full of weakness. What we see is weakness. And we can't make this temple glorious. Any more than the people of Haggai's day could make their temple glorious. You and I can't change people's hearts, we can't even change our own. But the time is coming when God will do another big shake-up. The time of the final judgment. The writer of the Hebrews warns his readers about that judgment in our New Testament reading. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth once more. His holiness will be seen. And when that happens, God will take the temple that looks so weak and insignificant now and fill it with his glory. All the effort that he has strengthened us to exert that looks so weak now will be worthwhile. God's temple will be glorious. And in that temple, God and his people will dwell in peace forever. So brothers and sisters, God said through Haggai to those Jews of old, and he says to you and he says to me, be strong, work, fear not, my spirit remains in your midst. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. For one day, you will see my glory in the temple I have called you to build. Amen.